Good morning, Orangewood. Our scripture reading today comes from the book of Mark, chapter 10. If you're willing and able, would you please stand as we read the word of the Lord? Starting with verse 13. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them and laying his hands on them. Verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave to all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, I want to say hi to everyone here on campus and those joining us online. Great to have you with us wherever you're watching from today. I know here in Orlando, people are watching. I know people around our country are watching. So wherever you're watching from today, I want to say welcome to you all. If you're on campus, if you'd like to take your mask off during the sermon, please feel free to do that at this time. Um, And if you're new with us today, whether here or watching online, uh, it's wonderful to have you with us. Uh, I know new people have been joining us along our journey as we have been in a series this next year looking at these encounters with Jesus. And so uh, I welcome you. So glad that you're here with us uh, jumping in. You know, we're going to be looking at today this sermon series, Unlikely Followers, and just how the vast diversity of people in the first century who encountered this rabbi named Jesus and how their lives were dramatically changed. And what I hear sometimes is people will say that there's, there's this narrowness to Christianity, this, this narrowness to the message of the gospel. And what, what we find through this sermon series is how inclusive it is. Uh, the, the types of people vary from person to person who encounter Jesus and the scripture speaks to this, um, this reality that whoever you are, no matter what you've gone through, that you're welcome to enter the presence of, of Jesus. There's an incredibly inclusive message, but what we will find today is as inclusive as it is that there is a challenge to being a modern person in our world and our assessment of identity from this passage. And so this morning, uh, we'll need to look at the audacity of Jesus' claim, the claim he makes here, the counterintuitive nature of his claim, 
And lastly, the response to Jesus' claim. So let's look first at the audacity of Jesus' claim. And we see it right here in chapter 10, verse 13 that was read. Uh, the people are bringing to Jesus uh, the, the, these little children. Uh, in the Greek, it's padion. It's, it's a reference not just to a child, but to a very young child. Uh, in the Gospel of Luke, uh, Luke's telling of this story, he says uh, they were bringing these infants to him. So the, the picture that we get is that very small children or babies are being brought to Jesus. We see it even in the context. Uh, th- these were kids that Jesus could hold. And this is what he gets at in verse 14. It says this, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them for such belongs the kingdom of God. We have to understand, as hard as it will be for modern people, this statement that Jesus is making right here would have cut through the crowd like a hot knife through butter. Uh, you may have heard the collective gasp from the crowd. Did he just say that? If it was a movie, you would hear the shrieking violins behind them. Why, why do we say that? Well, in this passage, uh, you can tell Jesus' disciples had a very uh, low view of the children. Uh, we read in verse 13 that they were rebuking these people from bringing these children into Jesus' presence. And so what we have to understand is the audacity to Jesus' claim that he is making here. Let the children come to me, for they are such that are the kingdom. What, why do we say that? Well, in the ancient world, there was a view of children was incredibly low. Um, I, I relied heavily on a historian named Owen Baki. Uh, he wrote a book called When Children Became People, When Children Became People. And in this book, he outlines how incredibly low the status was for children in the ancient world. He, he shares in the book uh, that children were not even named until they were eight days old. Unwanted children could be killed. They, they could be given away into slavery. They could be discarded in a common practice in the ancient world known as exposure, exposure. And what that essentially meant is the head of household in the ancient world had the legal right, the legal right to discard their child, Uh, whether uh, it was the family lived in poverty, uh, whether uh, an extra child would have had to divide the estate and they didn't want it, uh, whether the child was not the right gender, meaning it was a girl, or whether the child was illegitimate, whatever reason they were allowed to discard the child. And what we find is that these abandoned children were left on the dump or on a dung hill. That's where the children was left, abandoned. Most of these children that were left there died. Some were rescued, but usually they were rescued and taken into slavery. And this practice, because this was happening so often in the ancient world, we find hundreds of ancient names that are a variation of the Greek word kapros, which is the Greek word for dung or manure. Plutarch, who was a Greek philosopher who lived at the time of Jesus, uh, once wrote about a child who was less than eight days old. The child was more like a plant than they were a human being. Uh, This kind of verges on the point of being too graphic, but I think it gets across the implications of Jesus's claim, the audacity. Babies that were disabled or appeared weak when they were born were supposed to be disposed of by drowning. There's an ancient Roman law that said if a boy was born with a striking, strikingly deformed, that he was supposed to be disposed of quickly. And finally, one archaeological dig found the gruesome discovery that a hundred little babies were apparently murdered and thrown into a sewer. 
So how did this happen? Like, how did, how did they have a worldview? How did they, in this time, think in such a way that this was okay? Well, the reality is, in the ancient world, every society had uh, gods that they served, the, the gods of, of that time, that location, that country. And there was a dignity gap that existed within the society and how they related to those gods. Uh, so the king was seen as the, the premier of the society. He was seen as uh, divine or semi-divine. And underneath him, there was a hierarchy in the society. Underneath him were the courts and the priests. They were part of the second tier. And underneath them were the merchants and the artisans. And then underneath them was the very large group in the society that were the peasants and the serpents and servants. And underneath them was these children. And so ordinary children did not have the king's image. They, they were not part of considered the same God as the king. And so there was this dignity gap that existed in the first century and in these ancient cultures towards children. They were the most exploited, the most vulnerable, because they offered absolutely nothing to the society. We see even in the Jewish world, you can get a little sense of this hierarchy and the disciples have rebuked these people, whoever these people were that were bringing these babies for Jesus to hold. And Jesus' response is not only that these little ones were allowed into my presence, but the kingdom of God belongs to such as them. The audacity that he says. Jesus is saying it's not the king and his power that is the closest to salvation. It's not the, the priests and their religious garments who have tasted of the kingdom. It is the baby that I am holding in my arms. Rachel and I actually recently had a conversation about a month ago, just talking about how different uh, child safety has changed through the years. Um, you know, our kids, we have kids that have moved from car seat uh, to booster seat uh, to out of booster seats. And you have to make that progression. But nowadays there are very exact heights and very exact weights at which point kids are allowed. The, the measurements on child safety today have, have grown infinitely as we were talking about from when we were kids. Rachel remembers back in the eighties, they used to have a station wagon. Does anyone remember the 1980s station wagon? Yeah, there was no, there's no seatbelts in the back. Uh, so, so the kids, they just hang on for dear life around every turn, every turn that the kid was allowed to just do whatever they wanted in the back. The cops never pulled you over and said, Hey, what's your kid doing back there? Very specific safety regulations nowadays. Now, now why, why do I bring that up? Well, Maybe you're here this morning or maybe you're watching online uh, and you have objections. You have issues with Christianity. And if that's you, I'm really glad that you're here. Um, and I just encourage you to lean in with us with your questions about the Christian faith. But uh, one thing I would say, even if you have objections to the Christian faith, I want you to know our modern view, our modern value of children would not exist without the words spoken by Jesus. Do not hinder the children from coming to me. Jesus declared every human being under the sun and every baby bears the image of God. And our modern understanding of this reality would not exist without these words that Jesus has spoken in this passage. Every historian agrees on that. In his book, Who is This Man? John Ortberg shares how the life of this first century rabbi, Jesus, altered the perception of children forever. 
Uh, he, he says that in light of the first century, there was a very short life expectancy, around 30 or so, that people had, uh, and, and they instituted this idea of godparents. People within the church community instituted this idea of godparents, that if someone was to die in the event of a parent passing, there were other people in the church who would take on the role of caring for these children, that they wouldn't be discarded uh, to the margins. Uh, Ortberg goes on, he says this. By the late fourth century, a Christian emperor outlawed the practice of exposure, that idea of leaving a child on a dung heap or a, a garbage dump, uh, the practice of exposure for the entire empire. Over time, instead of leaving unwanted babies on a dung hill, people began to leave them outside a monastic community or a church. The beginnings of what be known as orphanages began to rise, usually associated with monasteries or cathedrals. So you can see the audacity of this one statement. Let the children come to me. And it's ripple effects throughout history. But we have to see from this passage the response of Jesus's disciples and still the difficulty for us, especially in our modern world. So that's why we need to look at the counterintuitive nature of Jesus's claim. Uh, what we learn from this passage, and it tells us in verse 14, that Jesus became indignant with his disciples. It's the only time in the Gospels that we actually see Jesus having this response. Agananteo, uh, it's indignant. It's, this, this, it's obvious that he is upset with his disciples. And we see the response of his, these disciples to these babies is this idea of our merit-based response in our modern world. These little babies have no merit except destroying everything that you and I have worked for. I remember shortly after Rachel and I had moved to Michigan about 10 years ago, uh, it was February, it was cold, it was winter. And then that, just in case you're wondering, uh, that meant uh, winter was just getting started there. Uh, it would go till end of April. And we were going to meet some people for dinner. I was standing outside on our driveway waiting for her uh, to come. And then we were going to leave. I was on my phone. I was just scrolling through the news, trying to catch up with what's happening in the world. Rachel walks out of uh, the house through the garage onto the driveway. And she, because it's winter, hit a patch of ice and began to fall until I caught her. I saved her. You're welcome. Now, 10 years removed, three kids later, who knows if I have the instincts now that I had then, but in that moment, in a flash, I, I just grabbed her. And after I grabbed her, I'd realized that to grab her, I had dropped my phone onto the driveway. I went to pick it up. The glass is shattered. So the next day I go to the iPhone store to talk about getting my screen replaced. And I start sharing with the guy taking care of me how chivalrous I was. This moment, this act of my glass being shattered wasn't me being uh, a, an idiot. It was me caring for my wife. How chivalrous of a, do you think you could give me a free screen is what I asked him. <laughs> True story. To which his response to me was absolutely not. And as he went away to start getting my screen repaired, uh, I started to think, I wonder, you know, this guy probably hears all kinds of stories, all kinds of stories. So I asked him when he came back. I'd love to know what is the craziest story anyone has ever told you 
about their phone being broken. He began to share with me, you know, actually, uh, it was actually a dad who was here just a couple weeks before you. And he, you know, the dads, he was a new dad, new baby was born. Those twilight feedings in the night, you, you're running on no sleep. If, if you're a parent, you remember back in those days, maybe you've repressed those memories as much as possible. Uh, maybe you're here or you're watching online. You're going through that right now. Those, those twilight sense of what's going on in the world. I have no sleep. And he began to share with me, this guy had come in who had obviously been running on a lot of sleep. And he had gone downstairs in the middle of the night to microwave the bottle for the baby. But instead of the bottle, he microwaved his phone. (laughs) At which point I said back to this employee, I hope you gave him the free phone. Kids are a beautiful blessing to us, but it is amazing how these little humans completely throw our lives into upheaval. I mean, the first few months, a baby is born into the world. There is little to no contribution to reality that they offer us. There are only a few things that I can look at and say, what do little babies at this time offer us in our reality? Uh, The three things I came up with, the reality that coffee stock will continue to rise because caffeine addiction is essential. The reality that the dad bod will continue to hold a firm place in our society. And lastly, the reality that you will spend more on diapers than on groceries in those first few months. It is hard to believe. Um, One of my best friends had his first child, and this is what he cannot get over. The, The response he keeps coming back to me is, how can this little human produce so much waste? And right here is the counterintuitive nature of Jesus's claim. The kingdom of God he has come to offer can only be received by those who receive it like babies. <laughs> what? If you have trouble with this claim, you would not be alone. It is very clear from the gospel of Mark that Jesus faces this issue over and over and over and over again with the people that choose to follow him. They keep coming back to this place where they think they need to bring some merit. What do I need to bring? In the previous chapter, uh, these disciples are arguing with one another about who is the greatest. And Jesus took a child into his arms and he said, receive this child and you will be the greatest. Jesus is saying, open yourselves up to the most vulnerable, to the most exploited, to the most oppressed, and you will begin to experience life in the kingdom. But obviously, he did not get through because in our passage, they're rebuking these little ones that are coming to him. Uh, these disciples are, are rebuking those. Those, I would understand, are the family uh, members or the guardians who are bringing this child to him. They're, they're rebuking them, saying, you cannot come. Epitemao is a very strong word uh, of disapproval or censure. We would use this word in our culture today to shame those in our cancel culture craze. Jesus firmly but lovingly reminds his disciples, if you want to find salvation, we must become like one of these little ones that I am holding. But of course, they still miss it because we find later, as we read uh, from verse 37, there's another debate that arises uh, between James and John and who will sit on Jesus's right and left in the kingdom. And they're longing for that seat. 
uh, in the Jewish Talmud, we, uh, which is the Jewish oral teachings on the Torah, uh, we, we read about how in ceremonies or in the company of others, the, the place of the highest honor is at the center and the next available highest honor seat is at the right or the left. So this is what we read in the Talmud. It says this, of three walking along, the, the teachers should walk in the middle and the greater of his disciples to his right and the smaller one to his left. But what we find in James and John and the reality of disciples all through the gospels is how incredibly difficult it is for us to surrender to Jesus's claim. The kingdom of God belongs to these little ones. Why is this so difficult? Why is this so counterintuitive? Well, all commentators agree that these brothers in chapter 10, verse 37, James and John uh, put their opinion their opinion, appearance for him as if they're wanting to honor Jesus, but really it's not about honoring Jesus at all. The commentators agree they're about honoring themselves. As we see the question that Jesus asked the brothers in the previous verse, he says, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? The question exposes the true motives of our soul and how out of sync we are with Jesus's claim. You see, there's something that we have buried within us down deep, whether we want to admit it, there's something down there that we've said, once we get it, once we have that, everything will be okay. And in our modern culture, the meritocracy narrative that fills the air that we breathe, you are only worthy if you produce, when you achieve, when you've attained a certain acceptable body image or a certain floor in the office building. In our meritocracy narrative of our modern world, your merit is the only thing that gives your life meaning. There's something that fills your dreams, something that fills your affections. If Jesus asked you, what would you want me to do for you? We can very easily come up with an answer to that question that is buried within us. And most of us, just like James and John, we're looking for something to give us standing, something to justify our existence. I don't know if you saw the movie uh, Chariots of Fire from the 1980s. It's an Oscar-winning movie telling the story of Harold Abrahams and Eric Little. Both of them were track stars in the 1924 Olympics. And Eric Little, there's a moment before the race, Eric Little uh, is sitting with Harold Abrahams and Eric Little says, I I run for God, but what do you run for? Do you have contentment? He asked Harold. And this is Harold's answer. He says this, Contentment, I'm 24 and I've never known it. I'm forever in pursuit and I don't even know what it is I'm chasing. I'll raise my eyes and look down the corridor four feet wide with 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. Do you hear what Abraham's is saying? He's saying this, I've never known contentment. I've never known rest. But if I win this race, if I win this race, then I'll have purpose then I'll have meaning. Then, then my life will be worth something. That's what he's saying. And this is the struggle. In case you're wondering, if you feel that, this is the struggle we all feel. Buried down inside, we want the place of honor. We want, we want some seat on the right or the left, some, some place where we can attach this badge of identity that says, I'm worth it. I've made it. I've accomplished it. This passage is so counterintuitive because it is showing us there are two ways to life, two ways. Either we will allow God to save us or we will try to save ourselves. That's what it means to become childlike. 
What it does it mean? It means that as small child, this infant that Jesus is holding, what, what, what was their life like? As a child, utterly dependent, desperately needy, a small child was relying completely on the grace and mercy of others in their life. There was no badge of worth. They had nothing to bring to the table aside from adorable cuteness, nothing to bring to the table because they had no merit. A small child had absolutely nothing to boast in. You see, when we think about what it means, we try to save ourselves. When we, when we, when we have to prove something, we have to put something forward from our lives that says we have merit. We've done something with our life. We've accomplished something. When we can see and look at our life and say, we found a seat at the table. We're at the seat of honor like James and John. Our life, if that is what we're going for, if that's what we're hoping in, it will only bring us to sheer exhaustion. I don't know if you've heard of author Brene Brown, but she talks about her own life this way. And just the, the pursuit, the hustle for worthiness. This is what she says. We don't talk about what keeps us eating until we're sick, busy beyond human scale, desperate to numb and take the edge off. And full of so much anxiety and self-doubt that we can't act on what we know is best for us. We don't talk about the hustle for worthiness because uh, that's become such a part of our lives. When I'm having one of those days that I just described, some of the anxiety is just a part of living. But there are days when most of my anxiety grows out of the expectations I put on myself. I want my daughter's project to be amazing. I want to take care of my son without worrying about my own deadlines. I want to show the world how great I am at balancing my family and career. I want, to, I want our yard to look beautiful. I want, I want people to see us picking up our dog's poop and biodegradable bags and think, my God, they are outstanding citizens. There are days when I can fight the urge to be everything to everyone, everything to everyone. And there are days when it gets the best of me. There is a hustle for worthiness Brene Brown says, friends, if, if you can be honest with yourself this morning, where are you hoping for a seat of power, a seat of acceptance, a seat of approval that has gotten the best of you, just like it got the best of James, John, and Brene. We are exhausted in our pursuit to save ourselves, but Jesus says to you and me this morning, where you have only known sheer exhaustion, I invite you into the kingdom for you to experience sheer grace. Nothing to earn, nothing to prove, just empty-handed like a child, ready to receive the blessings I long to give you. This is the whole point of how Jesus ends this section with James and John. He says this, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is inviting you this morning to experience his grace. Nothing left to prove, nothing left to earn, just grace, acceptance, and love from now through all eternity for the one who is willing, like a child, to extend their empty hands and hold them out and have Jesus save them. We will either try to save ourselves and experience life like Harold Abrahams or Brene Brown, and it'll feel like this endless pursuit that we can never achieve, or we will ask Jesus to save us, and we will find that we are a child already home. Already home. Do you see the counterintuitive nature to Jesus' claim? This goes against everything in our culture, everything of how we view our world. You have to bring something in your hands, something of merit to show that you've made it, something that shows that you have the seat on the right or the left. But Jesus is telling us you don't have a seat that you need. You just come empty handed. 
You see, becoming like one of these babies was a continual way of declaring to the world, I have no merit. This is what Jesus is getting at. This is what Jesus is driving home to you and me this morning is that we would come to him and we would have to say those words. I have no merit. I have nothing to bring. I have nothing to offer, but I will rest in the finished work of the gospel because you, Jesus, have paid my ransom. You see, the story of childlike faith shows the inclusive nature of Christianity. No matter who you are, uh, no matter what you've done, no matter if you're blue collar or white collar, no matter your race, no matter your political affiliation, no matter the sins you can't forget, no matter the sin that still clings to you like gum on a shoe, Jesus says, all who come to me empty handed, like no merit from a child, will be free. No other religion says this. Every other religion says you have to earn something. You have to produce something. Every other religion essentially says to you and me, here's the teaching for you to find God. Christianity says, here's the teaching. God has come to find you. Earn your place, atone your way. That's what the other religions say. Christianity says, no matter who you are, no matter what has happened, no matter your race or your resume, all who are tired of trying to save themselves can be set free. This is how the old hymn says it. The vilest offender, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment in Jesus, a pardon receives. So we see the incredibly inclusive nature of Christianity that it it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you come from. Uh, You can come and receive Jesus today, but there's also this exclusive nature of Christianity. Where do we see that? Well, Jesus says this pretty plainly in verse 14. He says this, let the children come to me. To me, not to Buddha, not to some other worldview, some other philosophy, some new age consciousness, not to meritocracy. Let them come to me. I'm the only one who can save you. You see, all other paths will leave you exhausted, running on empty, chasing dreams, but it's just a treadmill. The gospel declares to you, if you will hold up empty hands to God, you are already home. You're already home. So the question this morning is, how do we get the grace that God longs to give? Well, that brings us to our last point, the response to Jesus' claim. What's our response? Well, it's actually right here in verse 15. Jesus tells us that we must receive the kingdom like a child. We hold out empty hands. We essentially say, Jesus saved me. I have nothing to offer. You see, the gospel, the message of Christianity is never achieved. It's only received. We receive what Jesus has done for us. We receive that he had to die for us, that we've fallen short of God's perfection, that that we have no merit as hard as we've tried to clean ourselves up, as hard as we've tried to project the image that we are balancing everything on our life just fine. As hard as we've tried to compare ourselves to others, there is a perfect righteousness in Jesus that we could not produce. Jesus had to die for us. But we also have to see in the gospel that Jesus was glad to die for us. Despite our imperfections, despite our failures, despite however hard we've tried to prove ourselves, despite how many times we've asked for a seat on the right or the left at some place, despite the number of times we've judged the speck in their eye when we have a plank in our own, Jesus loves us still. He loves us still. We receive a salvation accomplished by Jesus. It is never achieved. 
Uh, this is why I love the life of Martin Luther from the 1500s. Uh, Martin Luther was a sinner through and through, and he knew it. <laughs> um, uh, Luther uh, was still figuring out his life to the very last days. Um, he had a lot of things about his life that were mistakes. He cussed like a sailor. Um, he was neurotic. He was filled with anxiety. But Luther knew the grace of God in a way that I have only begun to taste. And on his deathbed, Luther still knew he had not arrived. He still knew that salvation was received and not achieved. He still knew he had no merit in him, even though he is one of the biggest figures of all of history. And on January 23rd, 1546, Martin Luther had gone back to Eiselben, Germany, his hometown to mediate a dispute between two clients. And he became ill and knew that he was nearing the end of his life. And while he was there, he was asked by his friend, Justice Jonas, no affiliation with the Jonas brothers, in case you're wondering, but he was asked by Jonas, do you, do you want to die standing firm on Christ and the doctrine that you have taught? And Luther answered emphatically, yes. Luther's final recorded words to us are these. We are beggars. We are all beggars. This is true. This is true. This is how you know you're a Christian. When you can look at your life like Luther and you say, I have no merit. I have nothing in myself, nothing to bring, nothing to offer you. I come empty handed like a child. We are all beggars. This is true. If you get that this morning, if you can say that, if you can come empty handed, if you can come saying, I have no merit, you're home. You're home. Elaine, our middle son, just turned seven yesterday. And you know, he's getting to that age now where he's beginning to transition to that next phase of being a young boy. And he, you know, all those beautiful words he mispronounced for so long. He's starting to figure them out, which is wonderful in some respects because it tells you he's growing up, but it's awful and horrible in other respects because you love those cute mispronounced words because it reminded you that he hadn't grown up. And a couple of years ago, we're sitting in our kitchen and Lane is sitting on the counter and I think I was doing something and Lane looked at me and he said, daddy, what is Veek? And I said, I said, Veek, he said, yeah, Veek. And as a parent, you know, there's those seasons where you're trying your best to interpret the words that your kids are trying to put together. And sometimes you can figure them out, right? You can, you can put the context together and you know, oh, I know exactly what he's trying to say. And then there's other times you have absolutely no idea. And this was one of those times. And so I said, buddy, Veek, he said, yeah, daddy, Veek. And he started to sing. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves you. Come all you beggars. Come all you empty handed. Come all you with nothing to offer 
and allow Jesus to hold you in his arms. You are incredibly big. But he is strong. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the message of the gospel again this morning. It's the empty-handed and the weak who find the true strength that comes from you. Spirit, empower us to surrender to the beauty of the gospel again this morning. Allow us to experience the freedom this week that we have nothing to achieve, nothing to prove because Christ in you all has been accomplished. And we pray this all in his name. And everyone said, amen, amen.